Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. A few updates on my speaking schedule. I will be in Sioux City on February 4th and 5th at Sioux City, Iowa. If you don't know where Sioux City is, it's in Iowa. February 7th, we'll be in Grand Rapids. February 11th, Orange County. February 12th, Orange County. March 10th, Los Altos or the South Bay of San Francisco. March 12th, Seattle, Washington. March 14th, Salem, Oregon, April 23rd, Cleveland, Ohio, and April 24th through the 26th in Nashville, Tennessee for the Q Conference. Uh, would love to see you at one of these events. You can go to my events page on PrestonSprinkle.com, or you can check out CenterForFaith.com for most of these events here. And uh, the ones that you need to register with, you can do that through uh, the web, through through the, uh, the events page on CenterForFaith.com. Also, for my Patreon supporters, if you're one of the 200-plus and growing a uh, number of Patreon supporters. If you want to attend the March 10th event, that's a conversation between Justin Lee and myself. The title of the event is Sexuality, Scripture, and the Soul of Christianity. It's a several-hour event on Sunday, March 10th in the evening. It's going to be a provocative conversation, and it's I'm pretty sure it's going to be a very full house. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you get free admission. I finagled and begged and coaxed and convinced not really but i did ask him i asked the host hey can you kick kick me down some free tickets for my patreon supporters and he said yeah of course he said and then he said you know how many supporters you got i said well i have a little over 200 but i doubt uh, most of them will be able to come to san francisco but if you do want to come to san francisco or if you're in the area or want to fly to san francisco you get free admission to this event that's March 10th uh, in the South Bay of San Francisco. Conversation between myself and Justin Lee. Okay, back by popular demand. I, I just, whenever I talk to this guy, I feel like I'm just talking into the mirror. <laughs> like, it's almost weird. It's just weird because we see eye to eye in such, in so many ways. I'm like, just even the very words we use, as you'll see when we're talking about different things, I'm, I'm like, dude, what you just said is almost word for word what I often say, and I don't think he's stealing it from me, and I don't think I'm stealing it from him. And even if we're stealing stuff from each other, we wouldn't care. Um, I have on the show Scott Saul. Scott is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he's an author. He has just come out with his fourth book, uh, Irresistible Faith, and he talks a lot about some of the ideas in that book. And really, the ideas in the book flow from really the focus and heart of his ministry as a whole, like why he's a pastor, like why he does what he does. I mean, this book really, I haven't read it, so I, I guess I shouldn't speak too much. But as he was talking about the book, I'm like, dude, this just really seems to capture the heart of Scott Sauls. We talk a lot about uh, evangelicalism, faith and politics, and uh, Donald Trump and <laughs> Christianity sexuality and many other uh many other topics so please welcome to the show back by popular demand the one and only scott souls Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology of the Raw. I have back on the show, back by popular demand, the one and only Scott Sauls. Scott, thanks so much for being uh, yet another guest on uh, Theology of the Raw. Thanks, Preston. I didn't realize there was popular demand for this. 
Oh. <laughs> well, both of our moms wanted you back on, and I think <laughs> my mom you... doesn't know how to listen to a podcast, so I know you're at least half lying. <laughs> oh, what are we going to talk about, man? Let's start with your book, Irresistible Faith, uh, which just came out. This is book number. Is it number four for you? Uh, this will actually be the. Uh, let's see. This is the yeah. This is the fourth one. <laughs> You're already, you're already losing track. <laughs> I'm a little bit confused because I just signed a contract for a fifth one that I haven't started to write yet. So the numbers are mixed up a little bit. Are you able to talk about that one later on or no? Uh, sure, sure. It'll be a couple, probably a year and a half before it releases. But, but okay. uh, well, let's, yeah, let's start with Irresistible Faith. What's this book all about? And uh, yeah. Okay, so... Um, it is it is essentially a heart community mission uh, type of book, and um, it uh, it's an effort, Preston, to encourage, especially people who identify as Christians, to maybe consider or reimagine what beautiful life giving expression of. Christianity in the world could be. And hmm. in, in some ways it's a, it's an effort to, um, to return to the sort of new Testament, uh, picture of, of believers who lived such a quality of life and, and lived so beautifully among one another and among their neighbors that, uh, it says in Acts chapter two, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. And, Mm-hmm. That means a lot of things, one of which is that um, they're non-believing neighbors. They're neighbors that didn't know Christ or didn't identify with Christ, still experienced Christians as a positive, life-giving presence in their in their community, in their neighborhoods, in their places of work, and, yeah. and so on. And so it's, it's a, a bit of an effort to paint a vision what that could look like in our time. Do you, do you think Christians, I mean, it sounds like Christians are really hungering for this kind of life. Would you agree with that? Um, that there's a hunger there and yet probably, I guess I turn right around and say many Christians aren't experiencing that, that kind of faith that um, is super attractive and compelling to the people around them or even attractive and compelling to people within the church. Um, yes. I, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I, I listened to you a, a, a good bit, Preston, and I, I think you and I are very kindred in the way that we would look at the state of things right now. But I, yeah. I think that most thoughtful Christians are really weary of a couple of things. One, just this climate that we're in of suspicion and us against them and posturing and politicizing of everything. And so I think we're weary of that. And we're also weary uh, of being misrepresented by Mm -hmm. voices and, and sort of extreme kind of voices and examples that, that tend to get the most press, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in media and on television and and so on and and in movies and in film and in art. And what's being missed is stories like what Nicholas Kristof of the New York times uh, is telling these days about Christians and evangelical Christians in particular 
you know, Christoph identifies as agnostic, uh, not as a very religious person himself, but one thing he observes is an incongruence between the way that he sees Christians being represented hmm. in the media, in film, in, in sort of mainstream art forms, mm-hmm. you know, as kind of a, a hostile, critical, yeah. judgmental, holier-than-thou, uh, separated-from-culture group of people who are just really irritating and and what he actually sees, uh, especially when he reports on poverty and disaster and human need, he says that every time he shows up to a, a broken situation to report on it, Christians are always the first ones to show up. They're always the last ones to leave. Uh, they're the ones who are emptying their pockets of their own resources in order to help their neighbors in need. And, and so he, you know, he makes these observations that there are actually some really beautiful life-giving stories all over the world of how the people of Christ are making a difference in the world in a way that's so different mm-hmm. than the way that we're being portrayed. And so I think that we're all kind of weary of being maybe mischaracterized and we kind of want an opportunity to... Yeah to shine as the light that, that really does exist in the world. And, and uh, you know, hopefully we can get it out there somehow because yeah. uh, there really is a lot of wonderful stuff being done. Why do you think Christians are mis- – I totally agree with you. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, I guess the theological answer is because the Bible says so, right? Like don't be shocked when the world hates you or whatever. I mean, it's – I can probably give a decent theological answer, but is there a sociological one? Why uh, – non-Christians or non-church people are so eager to paint Christians in the worst possible light? I think it's a couple of things. I I think one is, um, uh, I think we're still being um, blamed for the um, ridiculous aspects of the moral majority movement in the 80s and 90s, where there really was a whole lot of pointer pointing of fingers, finger pointing by, by Christians at, you know, different people groups and, you know, the, the kind of the post 9-11 uh, remarks by a couple of pastors on all the national news channels about how 9-11 was the fault of gay people and of, mm-hmm. of, of abortionists and of, of people of the American way and, you know, all, all these, mm-hmm. all these different, you know, groups were just kind of categorized as being worthy of blame for 9-11 happening, uh, you know, as if God was getting back at all of these horrible Americans who needed to repent and become Christian, right? And I think that was yeah. kind of the low point of, of the moral majority movement when that happened so publicly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think ever since that time, there, there really has been a concerted, sincere effort on the part of Christians to, to write a different narrative and to live a different story than us against them. And, yeah. and so I think that we're still being held responsible for an outdated story, if, mm-hmm. if, if, if I could be honest with you. And I, I think even the, the current narrative of you know, 80% of the people voted for a misogynist who abuses women <laughs> and who's a bully and, you yeah. know, et cetera. Um, I, I don't think that's really a fair, I, I think that's a very superficial read of, of 
what actually happened in the latest presidential election, because the truth of the matter is that everybody, almost everybody was faced with two choices that they really couldn't imagine having to live with. And everybody had to go one direction or another. And, um, and, you know, I, I look at my own life and my own experience and my own friendships, and I, I know thousands of evangelical Christians, and I can only count on one hand uh, the number of, of, of evangelical Christians that I know among the thousands that I know who would call themselves Trump enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think, there, I think there's a, a false story being told. Yeah. Uh, a misinterpretation of whatever data that, that we were given in terms of who voted how, but we're, we're kind of lumped in. Um, yeah. Uh, and, so you're, you're referring so to the public narrative. You're referring to the 80, uh, the statistic that 80 or 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, right? That's, I see that, uh, I see that toted all over the place on, on, on the internet and see people repeat that, that, that is, yeah, keep, keep going. Cause I've got tons of thoughts on that. And I think it, it's completely just wrong on so many levels. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think what I would encourage us all to do is stop allowing the news media do our, to do our thinking for us. Yeah. Uh, and, and to stop allowing social media sound bites to do our thinking for us and actually think ourselves. Uh, Alan Jacobs has recently, recently written a, a really good book about that called How to Think. And he, he's basically huh. saying, don't believe everything you hear, yeah. especially if it comes from your echo chamber. <laughs> don't believe everything that you hear. Yeah. Um, look into it. Study the story from all perspectives and all sides before you start drawing your conclusions and you actually might become a more reasonable human being. Right. Uh, and, and, and also a more persuasive human being. Yeah. So, uh, and, I, and I do think the Trump narrative, at least in my observation, um, there's just a lot, of, a lot of people who are allowing the news to do their thinking for them. And, well, and yeah. their echo chambers to do the thinking for them in the same way that under the Obama administration, there are a lot of, you know, conservatives who allowed, you know, Fox news to do their thinking right. for them and didn't think for themselves. And, and so, you know, to be more careful, thoughtful thinkers, yeah. but, you know, back, back to your question, I think the other um, sociological reason is also a theological reason. And that is that there are certain aspects of the, the ethics of, biblical Christianity that do not jive uh, with, sure. um, with modern Western American cultural mm -hmm. values, um, you know, particularly around sexuality, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, among other things, but especially around sexuality, um, there's a sort of a developed s disdain in the name of tolerance, a, a disdain and intolerance for those who don't share the prevailing views about sexuality um, that the prevailing culture does. And, you know, I, I think the, the historic biblical, you call it traditional, but it really, I like the word historic better yeah. um, view of things, which is taken out of, several places of scripture in terms of sex and marriage. Um, you know, Christians always have been more conservative with their bodies and, and more promiscuous with their money. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and things have not changed. And that first part being conservative with our, our bodies, um, hopefully without 
passing judgment on people who don't identify with Christ, who have a different view of things. I mean, that's not our business to judge. It's right there in First Corinthians 5. It's not our business to judge those outside the church and so yeah. on. And the, yeah, but, but I do think it has put Christians in a position where we really do have a fork in the road to deal with. We have to, we have to decide whether or not we're going to um, have courage to be yeah. able to continue to hold fast to what seems to be the very clear testimony of the scriptures themselves um, at cost. Yeah. to ourselves and we we need to be willing to bear a cost for the yeah. things that we believe and and right now the, the the issue at least now seems to be sexual ethics and the sexual revolution has has really taken off and mm -hmm. ancient biblical sexuality is not only viewed as weird mm -hmm. but also by some as evil and oppressive yeah. and um and so I think that's part of it as well. So, so I mean, that's obviously the world that I live in. So it's good to hear you say that because from my vantage point, that certainly feels like the crux of this tension uh, is, is largely the clash between a Christian view of sexuality and even gender identity um, versus kind of the, the, the rapid pace that the wider culture is moving. But for, I mean, you, you live in a much broader world than I do. I mean, this is my, the, the kind of my, the one thing I'm focusing on right now, but you, so you would, you would still say that, that even as you kind of pay attention to many other things going on, you would still say sexuality and, and gender is, is really a main uh, dividing point or point of tension between the church and society. I, I do think it is, it is a contested subject. I, I do believe that Christians have decisively lost the culture war on this. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think Christians who haven't already acknowledged that and embraced that reality um, would be wise to acknowledge it and embrace it. You've lost the yeah. culture war. Yeah. Um, that does not mean that Christianity has failed any more than Christianity was failing in the Roman empire in the first mm -hmm. second and third centuries where the Roman empire had very similar perspective on mm -hmm. sexuality as contemporary Western white thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Christians were, were punished a lot more severely than, than Christians get opposed today in our culture for our views. We just get shouted at, yeah. you, know, you know, on a bad day, they got killed on right. a bad day, um, you know, for holding, <laughs> yeah. holding biblical views around sexuality. But, but here's what happened, you know, this whole dynamic of Christians being promiscuous with their money and conservative with their bodies and assuming a non-judgmental posture toward the world around them and toward people who did not agree with them, which is, I think, what you've really championed beautifully, Preston, and want to just encourage you to continue, you know, in that vein to, to hold grace and truth, law and love in, in this lovely tension that, that the scriptures hold them in, in your life and in your ministry and your, mm. your teaching the church. I appreciate uh, how that. To, I think do this faithfully. Um, as they did in the first few centuries after the resurrection of Christ in the Roman empire. And, you know, you, you probably know about this letter, uh, Preston written by emperor Julian, 
I, I talk about this some in the book, uh, Irresistible Faith, but um, Emperor Julian was sort of a Hitler type and he, you know, he was a genocidist and he wanted to kill off Christians in the same manner that Hitler set off to exterminate the world of the Jews. And um, he wrote a frustrated letter to one of his friends, frustrated by the fact that every time he saw a, one Christian executed for their faith, for their loyalty to Jesus as their primary king, uh, every time he would see one executed, 10 more would pop up. Uh, and he said, I don't, he essentially said, and this is a paraphrase, I don't think that I can defeat the Christians because of their kindness to everyone because of the fact that they, they take better care of our people than we do. Yeah. They take better care of Rome than Rome does. And that's what I'm trying to advocate for. See, we can, we can hold the, the biblical ethic uh, around sexuality, for example. And this, this book isn't about sexuality. The people need to buy a Preston Sprinkle book uh, <laughs> for that. I mean, I don't touch on sexuality as much as I do in my previous books. Uh, in this one, uh, this one's a lot more sort of general, broad, sweeping, life-giving presence in the world kind of stuff. But, um, but on the subject of sexuality, we must simultaneously, we must learn to simultaneously hold to what we believe the Bible to say and live it in our own lives without passing judgment on the world outside of, a, of, of, of our faith. Uh, and also be on the front lines of anti-bullying movements. Yep. Like, like, like if, if, a, if a gay kid or gay teenager is being bullied, or if there's a suicide dynamic happening or, 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 or depression, Christians should be on the front lines mm -hmm. uh, trying to address that and help address that in love. Christians should be, of all people, the, the most public vociferous opponents and antagonists toward bullying against mm -hmm. gay people yeah. while also holding to the historic view of sex and marriage. And it, mm -hmm. it maybe feels contradictory to say it that way, but there is this, this place that the Bible calls us to be uh, that, that combines law and love and that, that combines grace and truth. Mm -hmm. And the two should never be divorced from one another in the way that we engage the world around us. I think I've said the same exact phrase even that Christians should be on the front lines standing against gay bullying. I, I would even take it a step further that until we do that, um, our sexual ethic will not be very compelling because our right. grace or our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. The greatest apologetic for truth is love. And so when yeah. we are being the most aggressive uh, for standing up toward anyone who's being bullied, especially the marginalized, especially somebody who is you know, being bullied for something like a sexuality or, or whatever. I mean, when we do that, then people might take more of an interest in our actual sexual ethic. There, there's, um, I don't know if you've read it, a fascinating book uh, by a, a classicist named uh, Kyle Harper. Um, I, don't, okay. I don't know or even think he's a Christian. I don't know. He's, he's a uh, classicist. He wrote a book called uh, From Shame to Sin, and it, it looks at the the 300 years of Christianity, early Christianity, 300 years of its sort of sexual ethic. And it's a fascinating book because one of the things, well, two things, I mean, points out tons of stuff, but two things that really stood out to me. Number one, conversion in the early church was almost synonymous 
with leaving behind a Greco-Roman view of sex. Like to be converted mm. to Christianity was like synonymous, coterminous with, uh, with, with a whole new way of viewing sex. Like this whole idea that you can be a Christian and also have a very kind of culturally, um, oh, there you are. <laughs> it just popped up. I'm going to go ahead and put my video back on then. Um, the whole idea that you, that you could be a Christian and also have a largely, you know, cultural view of sexuality is just unheard of in the first century. To be a Christian meant you believe in Jesus and you have a different sexual ethic and different sexual way of living. Um, also, what was fascinating in that study is he showed, and again, I don't think, He's, he doesn't give any evidence that he's writing from a Christian perspective. Um, that w- one thing that was super attractive in the early Christian sexual ethic is that it was tremendously humanizing toward women. Yes. It, it was the Christians that reduced and ended up eradicating things like prostitution. It was the Christian yes. church that was the only community where women were fully equal with men on every level. And, and, um, and he and shows... They took in the widows and cared for people. And, and you saw how destructive the Roman sexual ethic was, especially toward, toward women. And yeah. I, it's ironic today, I think. Well, I just, I, I would love the church to, to connect those dots that the Christian sexual ethic is actually humanizing toward women. Because I think it's the wider cultural narrative is, is really speaking out of both sides of its mouth. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's... Um, yeah, I think it's intrinsically dehumanizing toward women when you kind of follow the the, the logic to its logical conclusion. Yeah. I think along those lines, Preston, this is where Christianity ought to stand out as as um, as a as the most life giving mm-hmm. uh, solution to the problems that we face. Uh, isn't it ironic that? that so many voices behind the, the me too hashtag movement are also those who showed up at Hugh Hefner's funeral to celebrate his life as a social justice activist who should be remembered for being such a hero. And, you know, we, me too is a product of the climate that Hugh Hefner created and, and the worldview that he championed and the life that he lived and um, the best thing that the world can offer is, is in, in, in this space is hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and I mean, I'm sorry, Hollywood. I, you, you're, not, you're not my mentor on sexual <laughs> ethics and taking care of women. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. You know, in, in the same way that, that yeah. you're, you're calling for Christians to have integrity, uh, you know, we, we have to be we have to be consistent. That's our witness. We have to yeah. be consistently truthful and consistently gracious. And the church always suffers in its witness when it lets go of one, uh, one of those two. Yeah. We, you know, we become truthful at the expense of being gracious or be, we become some version of gracious at the expense of, of being driven by truth. And, mm-hmm. you know, you lose one, you lose both. Right. Um, they've got to be held consistently in tension the world can't do that. Um, we ought to, uh, yeah. and sometimes we do it better than others. You know, it's. I mean, I'm a product. How, how old are you, Scott? I just turned 43. You're. you're uh, a little older I than just I, right? turned 50 this past oh, you year. You turned 50. So oh wow. Okay. I am so, 
old, old man. <laughs> so I'm kind of a product of the moral majority era when it was in its height, but I wasn't really paying attention. So I, I don't really, I, I, going back to the original question, like why are people so eager to paint Christians in the worst possible light? I, I don't think I maybe appreciate how loud and widespread and in many ways obnoxious and, and hypocritical uh, and power driven the, the moral majority movement was. So do you, um, and, and so I can, I don't know, and yes, I think the broader culture keeps trying to keep that perspective, that that view of Christianity alive. They keep trying to paint current evangelicalism in that light. But I guess mm-hmm. to their not defense necessarily, but I can uh, I can appreciate it. You know um, that it wasn't that long ago, and, and there's still lingering effects of certain people. I'd be mean, the one yeah. that comes to mind is Franklin Graham and others that are really. Yeah, not that didn't vote for Trump as the lesser two evils, but as the greatest candidate the country's ever seen. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that, that the, the vo- there are some loud voices still there, but I, I it definitely is a far minority position within evangelicalism. Even for those that, for instance, maybe did vote for Trump, but um, there's very few Trump enthusiasts in. Yeah. I think very right few. across evangelicalism as a whole, um, and that that eighty percent statistic it drives me crazy because it. First of all, it's just completely wrong for several reasons. Number one, the, the definition of what's an evangelical, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they draw from that statistic that like 70% of America is evangelical when if you actually ask some really just basic theological questions, just basic, um, yeah. only about 7% of Americans would be genuinely evangelical. They maybe go to church more than two or three times a year. They have yeah. any kind of Christian way of living. So, I mean, their definition of evangelical is just wrong. And also it never, it, it doesn't even ask a question, you know, 80% of those who voted, I didn't vote. I know a lot of people that didn't vote. Um, uh, and then it also doesn't even take into account the people that voted as a sort of lesser TV. And I've heard people say, Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, wait, no, I, I mean, I would say that putting Hillary up <laughs> as a candidate, I mean, I would almost argue that the Democrats helped put Trump into office by putting up one of the worst candidates, maybe the second worst candidate that the world has ever seen. I mean, you put up a decent candidate. If, 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 um, if, if Trump was up against, you know, Bill Clinton or even Obama, there's no way he would have won. I mean, there's no way. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, mean, I, I think that really matters when, when somebody says, look, I don't like Trump. But I really don't like Hillary, so as a lesser two evils, I'm going to vote for Trump. I don't. I think that makes a huge difference. That doesn't mean that they embody sort of Trumpism in, in right. their posture. Is that? Was, do you agree with that? Is that? Or am I, I do. blowing smoke? I do and I, you know I'm a none of the above guy. I mean I'll show my hand. I don't. I don't. I don't typically talk. I don't typically show my hand politically. But yeah, in that one, I, I will. I will come out as a uh, a none of the above guy. Yeah, uh, I wrote somebody in um, <laughs> because I, I just I just couldn't go either direction, right. and 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 yet I sympathize with with well-meaning Christian people who went either direction sure. uh, because of the lesser of two, lesser of two, yeah, really problematic choices, um, you know, scenario that 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 the whole country was in, but right, um, and and also yeah, I mean yeah. I think I think uh, and I think there was an article that was. It came out a few months ago that talked about this, that, that, tr- that the rise of Trump 
is not the cause of division or all these tensions, but is largely a byproduct of it. Or it's symptom- symptomatic. It's symptomatic. Yeah, that um, that the that the left. We'll just say the left. I don't love these categories, but the left has become so far left that people are getting sick of it. That half mm. of the country is not. You know, doesn't resonate with the far left agenda of, say, Hollywood or most news outlets or or social media stuff. I mean, there's so much there's so much being crammed down people's throats that is not just not just liberal. Liberal's fine, but that far left agenda that's redefining what it means to even be male or female. That's it's coming up with these just insane policies and so on. That it's almost like you've pushed people so far that they got to a place where now they're going to vote for a guy like Trump because they're like they're tired of. You know, the mm. extremes on the other side doesn't make it right. And again, I don't you know, I, I would never have or did vote for Trump would never will. But uh, but I can I can understand and almost appreciate some of the frustrations that would lead people to vote for someone like him. I don't know yeah. if I've ever said that on the air. I might lose some supporters for that. Again, to be clear, I think Trump is a terrible <laughs> person to be leading this this country. But I can understand why people would vote for him over Hillary. Well, I mean, this is, this is, again, this is you being an example of what I was trying to encourage a few moments ago and what I try to encourage throughout the book. You're thinking. <laughs> you're thinking for yourself. You're not, you're not letting echo chambers and, you know, your, your cable news channel of choice do your thinking for you. You're, you're, you're coming at the conversation as a rational, thoughtful person who has carefully considered all perspectives and developed a, a, a an opinion or a viewpoint that that you know is your very best effort to reflect a biblical world and life view around this issue and yeah, yeah. hopefully you'll gain a few uh a few listeners uh you, you'll yeah. get a net gain on that well, you know, it was even um i started to think about the sort of counter reaction that that Trump is a symptom, a symptom of that, you know, that people will vote for him because they've been pushed so hard by a far left agenda that, that actually, I, th- I think it came from Jonathan Haidt, who was a far left liberal atheist Jew psychologist mm-hmm. and his book, the righteous mind, why good people disagree on politics and religion. I mean, he talked about, and he's now more of a centrist because mm-hmm. he was like, yeah, the left is getting so far left that it's not even liberal anymore. It's like illiberal, I think, David Dave Rubin. Well, it's a, there's a new moral majority that's yeah, formed. Totally. Uh, if, if you define moral majority in the way that, that Luke chapter 18, verse 9, uh, described Jesus' audience, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and yeah. looked down on others with contempt. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. that, that was the 80s and 90s moral majority from the right. And now right. we have a 21st century moral majority from the left exhibiting the, the same behaviors with a different creed. Right. And this, again, it, you know, whether, whether you're a Christian in the 80s and 90s or whether you're a Christian in the 21st century, your opportunity is to witness to the gospel by having nothing to do with that kind of posture. Huh. Uh, yeah. You know, to... to, to, to engage the world and engage ideas from a posture of thoughtfulness and kindness. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, it used to be like, like, like apologetics, you know, defending the Christian faith was giving a reasonable, rational argument for 
why you believe Christianity is true, right? The whole, you know, Josh McDowell era, et cetera. And now I think the, the, in, in the climate we're in now, the most effective apologetic is not prove to me it's true, but, but, but show me it's beautiful. Like, like, yeah, like demonstrate so to me that your worldview leads to a loveliness that, that, that is greater than any other loveliness that, that other world worldviews are, are, are producing. And, you know, youth specialists, youth ministry specialists will say that warmth is the new cool. And, and I, I don't think that's just a youth ministry reality. I think that's a climate that we are currently in reality that, if you want credibility as a Christian, then, then embody the warmth of the gospel and the kindness of the gospel and surprise people with, with not only thoughtful sharing of your perspective in, in a, maybe in an environment of debate or discussion around a contested issue, but the way in which you express it. Uh, with respect and holding the other person in high esteem and taking them intellectually seriously mm -hmm. and, and taking them seriously emotionally. Uh, like, you don't, you don't mm -hmm. go on the attack. You don't troll. You don't, um, you know, you don't op adopt this. You know, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, the good people and the bad people. And I'm on the side of the good and you're on the side of the bad. God separates the world between the proud and the humble, not between the good and the bad. Um, you know, yeah, there's only one who's good according <laughs> to scriptures and that's, that's Christ, right? And the, the reason why Christ had to come was because none of us is good and, and we need, we need his rescue and that ought to have a humbling effect. There should be no more humble person in the world than the person who is absolutely sure that they're right about Jesus. Hmm. If you're absolutely sure that you're right about Jesus, then you're going to be fiercely humble. And, and, okay. and you're going you're gonna to take into account the person in front of you or on the other side of your screen has a soul mm -hmm. and has emotions and has a story. And the last thing they need is for you to pile on to them. Uh, what, 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 what the whole world, I think, is thirsty for is, is what Madeline Lingle talked about when she said, we, we draw people to Christ, not by telling them how right we are and how wrong they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they cannot help but ask about the source of it. And, you know, that's the answer. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the alternative to being a moral majority person, whether, whether you're coming from the right, the ideological right or the ideological left. If you're a moral majority person, the only applause you're going to get is from people who already agree with you. Right. And you're just going to be sitting in an arrogant corner together, um, you know, talking about other people's problems and just becoming more and more corrupt in your heart as you do so. Uh, and, and as you become more and more superior in your heart, as the people around you and your echo chamber bolster your sense of superiority <laughs> You know, yeah. and even that comes from a place of need and a, a place of, you know, having a story, right? There, there are reasons why we feel like we have to be right and point fingers at others. But remember that if, if, if you're listening to Preston's podcast and you're, you identify as a Christian, your, your primary job in the world is, is, is secondarily to be right and primarily to be humble. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if you're right without being humble, you're, you're going to be completely ineffective.
just as the Pharisees were. They lost their platform. They lost their influence. So did King Saul yeah. because they were all trying to be right without humility. Um, now, if you're humble without caring about being right, I mean, right. That, that's a problem too. You just become slippery and you, you affirm things that, that, that God is displeased with. You, you say peace, peace when there is no peace, you know, like, like the prophets <laughs> warned against, um, you know, being a sappy sentimental prophet um, where you have no enemies. If you, if you have no enemies, then, then you're not representing Christ. Well, if, 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 if there aren't people who, who are against you and what you stand for, that are identifiable at the same time. If, if it seems like everybody's your enemy, you're not representing the gospel either. Um, Does your book address that other side that, that, uh, the sort of peace, peace, uh, this person yes. who may, might be humble, but doesn't have any convictions or doesn't have any enemies. It, it yeah. addresses. Okay. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm sorry. I would assume that's not the, the main focus would be the humility piece, right? The warmth. Is that, um, well, your yeah, book, I mean the, the, Irresistible Faith, the one that, that comes out this month, uh, January, is um, it, there are three sections. One is, is just, the first section is just about the irresistibility of Christ himself. Of, okay. you know, our starting point being we're not okay and, and being okay with that, that we're not okay because he's a gracious God. He comes to us with grace and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love. Um, you know, I talk a little bit about just orienting our, our thinking toward toward biblical world and life view and, and, and really, you know, getting the scriptures into us, uh, you know, getting into the scriptures so the scriptures get into us and mm -hmm. just trying to, I guess, encourage us all to, to see Christ as someone to be savored and someone to be cherished because of the way that he savors and cherishes us. And then the second section is about belonging to a community that's headed in that same trajectory toward Christ. Um, you know, practicing transparency and kindness um, being willing to speak the truth in love to one another, to keep, keep one another, you know, support one another on the, the path toward Christ and faithfulness and obedience, uh, embracing hope together based on the resurrection and, you know, how the resurrection assures us that our future is always better than our past or present, no matter what our situation. Mm. And then it's really the last three chapters that, that talk about going out into the world full of grace and full of truth. And, you know, one of them is about treasuring the poor and, and really, you know, giving special attention to the least of these and how that's the calling of every Christian to mm -hmm. be part of that kind of effort, uh, embracing work and vocation as our mission, as our calling um, to sort of kindle the Christian imagination that no matter what your career path, if, if, if it involves creating, redeeming, uh, making order out of chaos, uh, restoring, healing a person, a place or a thing, or some comb combination thereof, then, then you're just as much as part of the part of the, an active part of the mission of God in the world as I am as a pastor mm -hmm. or as Preston is as a writer and a Bible teacher. Uh, and then the final one is just, you know, the final chapters is about neighbor love and, and, you know, loving those well who are near and in our circles and so yeah. on being the first responders um, in creative ways. And so, so it's, it's kind of a three section book, but, mm -hmm. but yes, I do deal with the grace and truth stuff. My first book, actually, the second edition actually comes out. Um, I hate to be a self, shameless self-promoter, <laughs> but publishers, publishers tell us you have to do that, right? Yeah, right. Um, especially when you got a generous guy who has you on his podcast. Um, <laughs> with what you have like a billion listeners now, right? So, it's not, no, it's um, not that. <laughs> yeah, but Jesus Outside the Lines, the, 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 um, the 
subtitle of that is a way forward for those who are tired of taking sides. And, and, it, and, and it really is kind of a book that, that you could have probably written better than me, Preston, because you've built your whole life on that kind of principle and approach to the world and engaging the world. But second edition of that comes out um, with a couple of extra chapters on race and on, uh, oh, wow. on gender issues. Um, oh, right on. Not like transgender yeah. issues, but more like men, women, me too kind of stuff. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and a lot of revisions in the other chapters as well. But that second edition comes out later this year on that one. Okay. Um, but uh, in any event, like you, this is a passion of mine, just, just, mm -hmm taking grace and truth and putting them together and watching and, and watching what Christ does with it through us. Mm -hmm. it, it's such a privilege to, to be part of that, but it's, there, there's it's such hard. a hung, there's such a hunger for it too. And I, I've, I've often said, I think there's such a silent ma majority of voices that are hungering mm -hmm. for a more nuanced, thoughtful, warm uh, perspective. And, and what a, what a golden opportunity G given the aggressiveness and polarized political climate Okay, um, it's almost like that. The way, just let's just say, politics or society as a whole, the way it is going towards these extremes, it's created this massive, beautiful vacuum <laughs> of yeah. opportunity. Um, and if you combine yes. that with a massive hunger for Christians for a a truthful and truthfully warm. I love that word, by the way. I haven't heard anybody say it like that. The the, the warmth. Warmth um, is a new cool. That's from uh, that's from Kara Powell, I think. From uh, oh, really? Fuller. She's a youth ministry specialist. Yeah. Yeah, I've got her, but I haven't read her book yet. But so she uses that. The, the warmth is a new cool. Yeah, is that? yeah. She and the others that she co-wrote. Interesting. With a lot of, I think the book's called Growing Young. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. Now, again, Jonathan Haidt talks about that. That um, mm. you know, if you want to convince somebody of an idea about 10% of what you need to do is present good, solid, logical, factual arguments. The other 90% is yeah. you need to speak to the heart of the person, um, right. which means you need to respect them. You need to show understanding. You need to show yeah. humility. You need to show that even, even with people on different sides of the political spectrum, look, hopefully we can acknowledge that there is some good <laughs> in right. the very ideas and heart of the other person. If you think they are 100% walking yeah. evil, yeah. you're not going to get anywhere in a conversation. And plus, that's just not true. So true. No person, we are split down the middle of good and evil in every person. There is no you know, evil people over here, good people over here. Yeah. We, we all have evil hearts, and, and we all do do good things in some cases. You know, yeah. even, peop even somebody like both you and I that are not Trump fans at all, um, that I think there's you use the phrase problematic. That was probably that's very gracious on your part, <laughs> a very problematic candidate. Even I would say, Oh yeah, there's some good things he does. <laughs> can, can you, can you say that? Uh, you yeah, know, hopefully he <laughs> loves his kids and you know, um, I mean, yeah. his kids seem to respect him and look up to him and so on. Um, but yeah. man, I wish I could, I wish I could, go on for another hour with you on that one. I mean, you know, yeah. Christ, just look at Luke seven and how he speaks kindly about a prostitute, you know, mm -hmm. and, you yeah. know, picking out that nugget of beauty that she demonstrates in that moment, mm. uh, or wow. the apostle yeah. Paul, who's affirming, um, idolaters in, in Athens in Acts 17 because yeah. they're searching for truth, you know, like, like, like he, he affirms them for being very religious, you know, that, that, that's a great, that's a great, just example. a great way to be a friend to somebody, right. Is to find 
catch somebody doing good before you start meandering into here's where I think your thinking is wrong. Now we got to get to that place where we say, Hey, sure. our, our thinking is different on this. And let me tell you why, where I'm coming from. And I want to hear you out as well. Like we, we, we got to go there, but it's got to be surrounded, like you said, by that 90% of, mm-hmm. of ethos of warmth of kindness and generosity of spirit. But yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Scott, I know you got to go. You got a meeting to run to. So we'll wrap it up. Uh, again, the book is irresistible faith. Super excited about this book. Um, uh, Andy Stanley just came out with a book. It's called, I think, Irresistible, right? Was I that, know, I was know. That and it's funny. We got the same publisher, and it's. Are the, you serious? I actually advocated for a different title, and the publisher said, "No, we think it should be called Irresistible Faith." So it's on Thomas Nelson to have, but maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's some magic in there. Maybe I get to just kind of jump uh, on the Andy Stanley yeah. bandwagon because he's a much wi- more widely known entity than I am. So so maybe yeah. they're just doing me a favor there. Who knows? You know, uh, so I wrote a book on nonviolence years ago called Fight. And it came out, I think, right just before Craig Groeschel wrote a book called Fight. Now, his was on, okay. like, ministry or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Craig Groeschel? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did. When somebody told me that, I actually didn't know who he was. Yeah. And then I'm I sure Googled him. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're curious. How did you get Bob Goff to write the forward? I mean, he's, he's a high div. Do you know Bob or did the publisher yeah. hook that up? Yeah, he's a friend. Oh, you know what? Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm speaking at a conference in Edmonton, Canada in a couple of weeks. He's the keynote. Okay. I'm doing yeah. a workshop on sexuality. So I'm hoping to yeah. give him I a guess, big hug for us. Well, I, I, I guess I could just call his cell phone. Apparently he has that, the yeah. number yeah. In, in his. He's still got the same number. Back <laughs> okay. with love does. Oh, that's he awesome. He answers about 40 calls a day. That's what he does all day long. I don't, I don't understand just mathematically how you can do that. Cause I've heard, I've heard he will actually pick up the phone. I'm like, yeah, we've witnessed it. He, he's got a, a, a an otherworldly, extraordinary capacity. So That's insane. All right. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for being on our show, and uh, we'll have you back on sometime, man. Keep up the great work, man. Thanks, Preston. Appreciate it, man.